Well, good morning to you, Spring Valley Baptist, and others as you watch with us. This, uh, this is the largest number of people I've had in here for an audience uh, since uh, March 15th. We used to just um, uh, recording this, and it'd be just Alan Knight and myself in here on Thursday afternoon recording that. So we're going live today, and then uh, we do have plans to reopen uh, next week, and we'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of the service. Uh, but I'm glad that you've joined in with us. Last week, uh, we began a, a new study in our Bible Studies for Life and then in the sermon series that introduces that study. Uh, and it's from uh, Bible Studies for Life, Living with Hope in a Troubled World. And I'll say again what I said last week. These lessons had been prepared in advance for months and months. And they've just come, I think, at the right time because I think we, we need the hope that we can find only in Jesus Christ because we are indeed living in a troubled world. The last, last several weeks have, have shown us that. And, you know, we're dealing with, with, with tension and strife between people all over our nation. And we're dealing with all the, the, the unknowns about this coronavirus thing. And we need to find hope. And we're in the first Peter. And, and, and it's a book about hope. It's a letter that he wrote about hope, encouraging these uh, young early believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it all focuses around the resurrection of Jesus Christ at least twice here in this first chapter. He talks about that. In verse 3 he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then we'll read in just a moment, uh, a little bit later farther on in here, but in verse 21, he says the same thing to us, uh, that he talks about the fact that uh, this hope is ours, again, because God raised Jesus from the dead. He says, through him, as Christ, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Our hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's a sure and steadfast hope that we carry with us all the way through life. So what we're going to look at today is the evidence of our hope. Because if we're living in close relationship with this resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we should give evidence of that hope that we have from him out of our lifestyle. So the whole principle, I think, that Peter is writing about here breaks this down in the fact that the, the, the principle of the life of a resurrection believer is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a difference in how we live, how we value God, and how we relate to one another. And I think those are three things that we need to focus upon as we live in our culture today. How we live our life, how we value God, and how we relate to one another. Those are significant things that our hope allows us to evidence to the community around us. So, look with me in 1 Peter beginning uh, in chapter 1, verse 13. And we will read through verse 25. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, 
So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, I think when we look at these words from Peter that he tells us three specific things that ought to be evidence of the hope that we have in our life. And they are this, that we should be holy that we should live in reverent fear of God, and that we should love one another deeply. Now, those are three powerful impacts that the resurrection of Christ in our life makes. And because we are filled with that hope, a living hope, he calls it, then we are to be holy, have a reverent fear of God, and love one another deeply. And he says, as we do that, then we're giving evidence of the hope. So let's look first of all at this challenge. We are to be holy. Now, that phrase has confused a lot of believers all through Christendom. And the reason is because God is described in the Bible as being the one true God and only He is holy. And yet through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we find challenges to us that we are to be holy because God is holy. Holy is the most profound, absolute description and attribute of God that we can find anywhere in the Scriptures. And Peter's principle is that if we are God's people, we should look like He is. That means we, are, we should be holy. One of the most uh, dramatic scenes throughout the Scripture found in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6 where the holiness of God is described as a seraphim hover above God, shouting to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And you notice that the angels don't say that God is just holy, nor do the angels say that He is holy, holy, but they say He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Three times for perfection. They believe in that number of perfection or a divine number. That God is perfect in His holiness. And to be holy means to be set apart, to be separate, to be distinct, and to be different. And certainly God is. He is holy, but it also talks about righteousness and a righteous lifestyle. In the New Testament, in Revelation 4.8, we get another glimpse of another scene of worship. But the same attribute of holiness is given to God. 
because John saw these heavenly creatures praising God. And he said, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we know that God is holy. But the challenge is that he calls us to be holy. So what is he talking about? What kind of holiness are we supposed to display if only God is holy? Well, here's what we have to put into context. Peter is contrasting moral holiness to a life controlled by evil desires. And he is urging moral purity. And that's what Jesus urged in our life in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48, when he said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there again, is that perfect and holy? What does it mean for us? Well, I think we go back to Genesis 6, 9, and we look at Noah. And we find that the kind of holiness that God is expecting of us is that holiness that is described best as blameless. And, and that's what Jesus used here in Matthew here in 549. It's also the same thing in Matthew 6, 9, to blamelessly live before God. Noah wasn't perfect. We know that if you go back and you read that account in the Scriptures. But his life was blameless before God. It was a lifestyle of, of being a true devoted follower of Christ inside and outside. So we are called to be holy. And Peter doesn't just tell us to be holy. He doesn't just challenge us to be holy. But he talks about several different areas in our life where holiness needs to be evidenced. First of all, he says, holiness involves your mind. And that simply means you have to decide that you're going to be holy. And the NIV, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. In other words, you've got to desire to be holy. And that begins in your mind. So Peter is saying, get ready to be holy in your mind. Then secondly, holiness involves your will. So we have to practice self-control. And that's what Peter says in verse 13 when he says, be self-controlled. Your will is the part of your soul that determines what you do and what you say. And so Peter is challenging us about the need to exercise self-control when we are tempted to sin. It's your will that says, no, I'm not going to yield to that temptation to sin. I'm going to try my best to be holy. Self-control is actually one of the fruit of the Spirit that is developed in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit produces that in us and controls that. And thirdly, he says, holiness involves your future. In verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's challenging us about uh, reminding us of the return of Jesus Christ. And that's the source of hope which challenges us now to be found holy. And then in the fourth place, he says, holiness involves your conduct. That's where it all comes down to where the rubber hits the road. Verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That's the, the contrast between moral purity and the depravity of the culture in which we live. And we're supposed to choose moral purity. See, holiness involves living differently than people who do not have the hope of Jesus Christ in their life through his resurrection. 
See, being holy means living so that others will say he's, he or she serves a wonderful God. Historians tell us that in the days of Alexander the Great, when he was conquering uh, the world, that after one battle, a soldier was brought to him who had been charged with desertion in battle. And Alexander the Great uh, listened to the charges against the young man. And he looked at him and he asked him, what is your name? And the young soldier said, Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great looked at him for a few moments and then he uttered these profound words. He said, soldier, change your behavior or change your name. Some of you today might be challenged when you hear these words because the lifestyle that you are living is vastly different from a lifestyle that reflects the holiness of God. And we're to give evidence of the hope of the resurrection in our life. And one of the ways that we do that is by living a holy, blameless lifestyle. Now, the second thing that Peter says to us that we're to do to give evidence of our hope is that we're to live in reverent fear of God. Verse 17, he says, You call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So we go from describing what holiness means and to live in holiness to talking about living in fear of God. He's a holy God, a loving God, kind and merciful. He wants to have a relationship with us. But Peter tells us to live in reverent fear of God. So once again, we have to ask the question, what does that mean? How do we bring it down into our level of understanding? And most importantly then, how do we practice that? Well, here's some scripture verses from Proverbs, I think, that help us understand the framework for the fear of God. In Proverbs 1, 7 Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 8, 13, he says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That's a good one. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And in Proverbs 9, 10, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in 14, 27, he says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. And in 16.6, he says, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. And then we go back to the Old Testament again in Deuteronomy 5.29, and this is the word of God. God says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. So a fear for the Lord combines two qualities of love plus respect. It's loving respect and it's respectful love for God. And once again then, Peter gives us some ways to apply that or reasons why we should choose to live in reverent fear of God. So we live in reverent fear of God because of his holiness and his righteousness and because he is the ultimate judge. So then how is that lived out in our life? Why should we be living in reverent fear of God? Three reasons. Number one, in verse 17, Peter says, because life is short. He says, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. We are strangers here. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we should fear God. And we should fear God because we need to live our life for the glory of God because our time on the face of the earth is short. No matter how long you live here, it is, it is short compared to eternity. And we want to spend eternity with God. Second reason he says we ought to live in fear of God is because God is our judge. One day, and he's writing to believers now. He's writing to Christians. That applies to all of us who are part of the kingdom of God. All of us who are part of Spring Valley Baptist Church. If we believe in the resurrection of Christ, confessed our sins, repented of those sins, and asked Christ to be the leader of our life. Then God is our judge. And one day, all of us will stand before him as believers to be judged for what we've done in our life, whether good or bad, what we've done with the gospel opportunities, what we've done with our spiritual gifts. In other words, how we've used our life to give evidence of God. Because 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we should fear that we are not pleasing God in where and how we use our time, our talents, and our treasure. And then the third reason that Peter says that we should fear God is because of the cost, because of the cost of our salvation. When we understand the sacrifice that God made for our salvation, then that should cause us to live in reverent fear of Him, a respectful love for God because of what He did for us. Peter reminds us of the cost of our salvation, verses 18 and 19. For he writes, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That tells us the cost of our salvation. It cost God his son, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And when we understand the cost of our salvation, then our heart should be filled with love for God because he gave his own precious son as that perfect spotless lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And Peter goes on to say, that this was God's plan before the creation of the world in verses 20 and 21. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. See, God planned our salvation. He revealed it and he applied it to us so that our faith and our hope or in God alone. And he did it that way so that he and he alone would get the glory. It's nothing we can do to earn it, nothing we can do to buy it. It is a gift from God, but it has conditions upon it. We have to confess our sin, repent of our sin, acknowledge Christ as our Savior, and live under his leadership. So holy living, I think, can be summed up this way. Holy living is motivated by a godly fear that does not take lightly what which was purchased at so great a cost. Holy living 
is motivated by a godly fear that does not take lightly what was purchased at so great a cost. God loved us. He sent his son to redeem us. And we should live then in reverent fear of God, a respectful love. And then the third thing that Peter says that demonstrates, I I hope that we have in Christ, is that we should love one another deeply. That should go without being said, but yet we find that over and over and over throughout the New Testament that we're to love one another. We're to love one another. Verse 22 says, now that you have been purified, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now here Peter uses two different words for love. First of all, he talks about a brotherly love, philo from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And he's talking about have sincere love for your brothers. But then he says, love one another deeply from the heart. And there he's talking about agape love. And agape love is the love that God has for us. And we could define that kind of love as being love in spite of, or or love even because of our sin. You see, God loved us even when we were lost in our sins, when we were at our worst, Romans 5, 8 tells us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's God's agape love for us that we love in spite of. And we're called to love one another deeply with that agape love in spite of all the failures and imperfections that every one of us has. So we're commanded to love that way. Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So so Peter challenges us about the level of our love for one another. That we should love one another deeply. And that word literally could be passionately. And in the Greek, it paints a beautiful picture. It means to stretch out. And it's the picture of a horse galloping at full speed toward the finish line and stretching out his neck to cross that finish line first. And the indication or implication for us is that when we love deeply from the heart, we are going to put our necks out and we just might get hurt. But yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to love one another deeply. And the reason for that, Peter says, is that attracts other people. That attracts other people when they see that we're living a holy lifestyle, that we have a a reverent fear of God, and that we love one another deeply. So there's our challenge for today as we seek to give evidence of the hope that we claim through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So may we be challenged to live holy as we leave from here, to have that loving respect and a healthy fear of God, a reverent fear of God, and then to love one another deeply from the heart. Father, we thank you for our living hope as we are born again in Jesus Christ through his resurrection and our faith in that.
May we take to heart the words that your Apostle Peter gives to us today. That we would demonstrate this love every day in our life. We would demonstrate this hope every day in our life. We would demonstrate uh, your, your holiness and our reverent, respectful love for you every day of our life. Father, we pray all of this in the wonderful name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.